Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampkin, and my guest today is Miss Natalie Solomon Brimage. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I wanted to first thank you for taking the time to do this. I know your schedule is really busy, so I really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. So how did you get into the career field that you're in now? I want you to describe what you do. So I am a public health analyst and a project officer, and um, I work for the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, I essentially got into it when I went to school. I always thought I was going to be a doctor, and I ended up going to do a science program before college, like the summer before college, I got accepted into this program and it was science and math and I was exposed to public health um, for, my, for the first time outside of just med school and was able to go do some research and um, eventually I was able to get into a fellowship called the, um, with NIH, with the um, Minority Institutes um, and Research and Training Pro- Program. And that was my first exposure to doing public health. And I got to go to Barbados and we did a study on type two diabetes and women's health. And I got to go out and meet people and talk to them about what their culture um, was and how it influenced their eating habits and their overall public, their overall health care and the development of type two diabetes. Um, So that was in epidemiology. And I thought that was cool on that end, but I still, in the back of my mind, would say I'm still going to go to med school. Um, and then when I got back to the States, because I was in Barbados for about six months, then we had to do all this lab work and data extraction, and I didn't really like that. So I, I, did it, <laughs> I was like, this is, not, this is not for me. So I decided to, to, not to kind of step back for a little bit and pursue continue to pursue my psych degree and um, thought about it and said, I don't, I don't want to sit there and do, be in the lab all day. I'd rather be out and about and talking to people um, and helping them figure out what's going on with their health. And once I figured out that I could go in another area of public health, um, it kind of stuck with me. And so I could have a broader reach and I could still incorporate women's health and I would be able to um, actually talk to patients or, or and clinicians at the same time without being held to the strict um, schedule of clinicians having to make their deliverables for their insurance companies and so on and so forth. Although, oddly enough, I, th- I also thought that when I was in the medical field and I worked, I worked in the operating room um, and I, you know, I pretty much have been in the emergency room I said, oh, this is cool. But then I'm like, I don't think I want to do the med school thing. Um, I got to organic chem and said, you know. <laughs> that just sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. And I love bio and, and all that. But I got to that organic chem and I said, oh, so I need this. From- no, I'm good. And um, decided to look into public health. And I could see my, I could get into it a little bit better. Um, so I've been in public health over 20 years now. Um, it's been great. I've been able to interact with so many different people. Um, 
and was able to get a fellowship after college or after I worked for a little bit in a healthcare consulting firm. And that was my first kind of dive into the next part of public health to say, okay, well, is this what I want to do? And then I graduated school, took off some time. Um, the, gra- the, the job I was working for um, paid for me to get um, credits. And I took courses at, Hop- at a Hopkins School of Public Health. And then that was great. But then I decided I need to quit my job because of dynamics in the workplace. So, of course, they're not going to pay for school anymore. So I moved up to Pittsburgh and got accepted there and got into minority health, was able to get into the community um, a lot more and focused more on the behavioral health aspect, which complemented my psych degree. Um, And it just seemed a lot more fun and not so um, static for me. So... And it fit my personality a little bit more to be in the community and still be a liaison between that and higher ed or whatever particular corporate structure I may have worked for. So, um, so now I kind of, it, it's been quite the journey. I've worked with um, clinicians for, in the, for programs that, and ran programs that have doctors that work in underserved areas and as long as they work in underserved areas for a certain amount of time, but one of the programs I used to manage would pay back their loans. Um, So I did that for a couple years and then I decided I needed something else to do. Um, That was a little bit more women health um, focused and more in the field with health disparities um, and, and the like. So and health inequities and I applied to a bunch of positions. And at this time I was already a fed and I didn't recall that the job that I have now that I uh, applied for it at all. And they called and said, we're from the HIV AIDS Bureau um, and we're interested in you. And I've been there since 2012 and the group that I work with now, um, we, we work in HIV and AIDS, but we try to figure out how to individuals that are getting care Um, If they're falling out of care, if they're not going to the doctor, is it because they don't have access or is it because they're not communicating correctly with their providers? So we look to see where individuals have fallen through the cracks and we develop programs, um, funding for programs to catch those individuals and get them back into care, get them access, get them retained in care. Um, And that affords itself that we get to do so many different projects. So we can do stuff. I've been able to take a program that was surrounding women of, women of color and HIV care delivery. Um, and I was able to take that and look at what are the cultural nuances and the unspoken cultural norms that play into why women of color that are, in, that are dealing with HIV are not going to the doctor and not keeping their appointments and are not on their meds. And having clinicians kind of take a step back and think, well, maybe it's because of how I'm talking to them. Maybe it's how I'm receiving them or how they're communicating to me Um, and all the unspoken things that we may take for granted. Clinicians may take for granted that may offend that patient. And now that patient is no longer going to speak to you and they're not going to come back and get their care. So that's one example. We also have programs that look at the workforce and how can we better equip our private, our clinicians and 
private care um, doctors and nurses to better deal, to better treat individuals with HIV on a more mainstream level. Um, so that was one program. Like we have tons of different um, initiatives that we take on that are, they're pretty much innovative, something that is kind of outside the box of what the government normally does. Um, but I really enjoy it because we get to, we get to help on this end and write grants and what have you and administer them. But the relationship that we're able to develop with these entities, be it a university or a clinic, are priceless because we get to see actually what we're doing. Where, where's, our, where's the money that we're trying to be good stewards of as analysts? How is that developing? What are some nuances? What are some better ways to serve the community and make sure that they're getting the care they need? So, um, so that's the field I'm in now and I enjoy it. Um, but you know, there's always work to do. So, you know, so I want to back up because you mentioned AIDS and I, this won't sound crazy, but I don't know if it's because of the, because how prevalent cancers become. I haven't heard the term AIDS and HIV in a while. It's almost like. Yeah. It's more, it's, and honestly, you know, and it's funny you say that because it's kind of a good thing in a way, because that means it's being addressed to a point. It, we still there's a huge need for it. However, it's because when it was first brought on the scene in the 80s, um, of course, the, the treatment of it was, on, was kind of seen as something toxic and it was, you know, folk, clinicians didn't want to have anything to do with it. And individuals that did contract a, a AIDS after they had come up HIV positive the, the amount of meds that they had to take. And by the time that they were diagnosed, their lifespan wasn't that long. So a lot of times they didn't get to get the benefit of the meds and all the, the amazing amount of medications that they had to take just to function hour by hour for some time, for some individuals. So now a days it's healthcare has gotten to the point where it's, it can be managed as a chronic disease. The amount of medications that individuals have to take, um, it has reduced tremendously. Um, some people now, it used to be like 20 to 30 pills a day back in the 80s to the 90s. Now it may be only be a couple. And it's, it's seen as more of a, it's morphing into a chronic illness for some individuals. Um, so, and it's a little bit easier to manage. So the buzz is not there as much, not to, but it shouldn't take away from the fact that it's still very much an issue um, in the recent um, State of the Union address, uh, the administration pushed out this new initiative to um, combat HIV within the next 10 to 15 years. So our, our agency is involved in trying to address that issue. So, um, have, the, so have, the, have the statistics shown that the numbers have gone down? Have they stayed about the same? For individuals that are in the Ryan White program, which is the program I work for within the government, um, those individuals that have been compliant with the Ryan White, with Ryan White care and physicians, their viral loads, as we say, um, have been reduced, uh, which is what we want. We want to be suppressed so that the body can uh, respond to treatment and 
um, their immune system will not be as compromised to have negative effects to whatever illnesses that may be floating around and what have you. Um, but they have, um, but that's not, they've had in the white male gay community. However, within communities of color, the rates are still very high. So that's something to be said about the audiences, but um, I can't, I won't really say, I won't really go into that part right now only because I'm in my government hat. When I'm so you're saying you can't say why the numbers are, are high with, the, with people of color, is that what you're saying? Not uh, to, to the extent that I have my own views as to my personal views as to why that is the case. But I will, I will speak to the fact that because um, it is not talked about in the communities of color, because there's stigma associated with HIV and AIDS um, and how is it being contracted, um, it is causing it to the rates to either plateau or increase because individuals don't want to talk about um, how primarily within the heterosexual community, the, the level of incidence for women of color is extremely high, which is to, that they are contracting it more often than not from their male partners. And that, is usually, that has been attributed to men not being faithful, either with women or or men, whatever their preference is, that women of color are more apt to seem to to be infected or the rates are higher with them um, because their partners are not disclosing their behaviors. So a lot of women that are over 50, that Essence did did um, an article about this years ago, that women women of color over 50, the rates among... HIV was extremely high and skyrocketing. And that information that came up to us in a meeting a couple of years ago, an individual was like, I don't understand why, um, you know, why, why the women, why the rates just going up as they are. And a lot of it has to do with their partners not being as transparent as they should be about their sexual practices. And a lot of these women are married and their husbands are not being faithful. And if they're not being faithful, they're, um, they're, they're not protecting themselves. And now they're having sex unprotected with whomever they're having with, and then they bring it home to the wife who, you know, why would she use protection with her husband? She doesn't think to. So now, fortunately, because of that, with women of color and a lot of them that are trying to be faithful or safe or what have you, the rates are just you know, keep going up and up and up. Um, And then on the flip side, also, there was always that undercurrent of, well, the DL thing, you know, men end up being on the DL and having sex with men and bringing it home to their wives. Um, To an extent, yes, that is the case, but more often than not, the rate is higher amongst heterosexual couples. Because... Because I mean, I'm old enough to remember like when AIDS first came out, Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, they used to pass it off as, like, you know, that's, like, the gay man's disease. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, it really, like, as you get older, it doesn't really make sense because, because it's, like, you have to be sexually active and 
it's not just gay men that's sexually active. Exactly. So it's kind of exactly. It's just one of them stupid things that, that yeah, we I mean, <laughs> people promote that, you know, to kind of like get away with stuff. And I'm like, you know, and it's unfortunate because when within the the gay black community, we're we're actually getting in the midst of um, doing an initiative with that. Um, the rates among them are still very high, but a lot of times those those individuals are not sleeping with women. So okay, all right. It's, it's kind of yes. I want to stop because you said so. Has has anyone figured out why their numbers are higher with the gay black men? Yeah. Well, there is a lot of and a part of the initiative that we're getting ready to do now, um, or we're in the midst of now, is to see why is that partly why is that the case um a lot of it comes from stigma um the fact that even though it's a little bit more i guess acceptable or status quo for men to be men of color to be gay or it's not that big a deal like it was before hush hush that people assume that people are out and still being themselves when that in fact is not the case there still is a negative connotation for gay black men in the community. And I'm just speaking to communities of color as far as black men. There's right. still a huge stigma against gay black men. Men cannot come out and be who they want to be or who they um, profess or feel themselves to be anymore be- or as much as people may think. So because of that, they're still participating in high-risk sexual behaviors but, and depending on if they are the, the one giving or receiving, they don't consider themselves gay. So it may be something that they're just not ready to deal with and it's just a quick thing, so they're not going to use protection. So because of that and the stigma, folks kind of go, individuals may go from one partner to another, to another, to another, because they're not ready to come out to be dating openly. So they keep every, so some individuals may just keep it quiet, but live whatever life they're living, not to say they're dating women, but they're just not ready to come out and, and talk to their doctor about it. So if they do engage in unsafe sex um, with the same person of the same sex, and they're not ready to say that they're gay, then they still, and they've contracted the disease, they're still passing it on and not telling anybody because if someone get if they get it, they may be like, well, how'd you get it? And a lot of times they're not going to be inclined to tell the doctor that because they have sex with men. So um, the stigma that surrounds that prevents individuals from disclosing. And if they're not disclosing their status, they're not going to get the treatment and the care that they can get to make sure that they are protecting themselves and anybody else. Because it's still so, it's still very kind of, Hush, hush in the black community. Sorry, I guess because I guess I guess what you're saying is when you find out you have it, you have to disclose all your partners, like everybody you've had sex with. You. Okay. You. I, 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 okay, I guess that's the part because it's like, I mean, you, you, you the same way you could have got it from a man, you could have got it from a woman. So right. that's why I'm kind of, I don't know, I guess... I guess one is one of the things, you know, is yeah, as I'm getting older, I'm just starting to think about more things because that, again, when I was coming up, 
you know, when AIDS first came out, it was just, it was the gay man's disease. Mm-hmm. So they just kept attaching that stigma to it. When right. really you can get AIDS, I mean, you can get AIDS from a woman. So. Right. But because like the, the proper, um, because a lot of individuals, some men, um, are still dealing or grappling with the fact that they may be gay or may not be gay, they're not going to necessarily ask what is the proper precautions that I need to take to protect myself from being infected or infecting someone else when it mm. comes to that type of relationship. Okay. Different things, not, not necessarily that drastic, but there are a lot of other things that you need to be mindful of when you engage in that type of sexual practice. And that, it's a, it can be a lot easier to get infected through that level, through that particular way of transmission, through the the type of relationship that those individuals have. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. Because, yeah, there's, it's, there's a higher rate of transmission with that particular behavior of, of sexual behavior. So not to say, and if you think about that, when you're dealing with in the male um, communities, um, if if that particular action is painful, you're not necessarily going to say anything. You're just going to suck it up and keep it moving, not realizing that you've just probably injured yourself or your partner, and now you've exposed him and yourself to a whole host of other things. That if you're just trying to get something quick and go, you're not thinking about that. There's communities and subcultures within the gay community where individuals may meet up in a park or they have the dating sites or, or what have you. Um, and they don't ever want to talk about what just happened. They're just going to pull it out and go. And they're not, they're not thinking to take the time to put on protection. Whereas not to say that doesn't happen with women, but that particular practice of cruising for some individuals, as they may call it, is more normalized in that, in that part, some parts of that community where that's not necessarily the case when you're having, um, heterosexual relations. So you, they tend to, some individuals may put themselves in higher risk categories than um, knowingly because of how their dating practices are versus individuals that may not be thinking that because they just want to get a hit, hit and go. And it really depends on what else they have going on in their life and why, why they're particip- some people participate and that behavior, they have different motives. Um, some of our clients, you know, are sex workers, male and female, and that's how they end up contracting it. Some are, you know, are dealing with substance abuse um, and mental health challenges. And because of the stigma and the lack of acceptance um, from their family and friends, they oftentimes participate in a high-risk behavior because their self-esteem and self-worth is such that, well, my family doesn't love me. They don't want to accept me for who I am. And a lot of times behavioral um, evidence has, has definitely suggested that if you don't feel worthy of, of the love that you see your family giving to someone else who doesn't live a lifestyle that they, that lives a lifestyle they approve of, a lot of times you're inclined to be, to do self-destructive behavior for coping mechanisms. It's not the best, but a lot of times that's how people cope. 
And that can manifest itself in reckless behavior, some of which manifest in having unprotected self with sex with multiple partners. Um, and in, a, in parts of the, the gay community, that's, that's normal. And um, sometimes it's a thing within the community that if you're positive and I'm positive, then okay, no big deal. But then some individuals aren't, they don't know. So they just keep going, but they haven't gone to get tested because of the stigma of going to the clinic to go find out. So um, it's like a, it's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. So do you guys, do you, do you guys treat, um, I, I think you said um, behavioral. So do you guys treat the mental piece as well? Because if they, if they continue with this destructive behavior, then clearly you have to treat the, the mental aspect too, correct? Correct. So with the, the grants that we, that we write and provide, um, we expect the applicants to be able to provide some sort of behavioral health component to the intervention that we're doing. So that would mean that they would have to bring on staff, depending on the initiative, um, a psychologist for, or, and a social worker that may already be working at the clinic or the university that is equipped to deal with um, individuals when they've disclosed um, their status, if they choose to disclose it. Um, and then there's, there's also assessments that are done um, by, by the respective clinics and healthcare institutions um, that we deal with and work with with these grants that do an assessment after an initial screening to find out even if they're eligible and then they do a deeper dive into what are your sexual practices and then um, there are various amounts of um, Likert type scales and behavioral health assessments to see where their head is at once they've come in to find out why they're here, you know, if they're ready to disclose, what is that making them feel like? Um, uh, do they have somebody to talk to or not? Do they need someone to talk to there? And the one thing that within the communities of color, um, I would say we don't talk about mental health. Um, it's like a bad word within communities of color. And I, um, because- You still think so? Huh? You you still you still feel that way? I do. I think for now it's a bit different, yeah. But I don't think historically, no. I think this is just in the past couple of years where it's okay to talk about mental health because people still say black people don't go to counseling. Hispanic people. Well, but you know I mean? okay, but but you but but let me back let me back you up because. There's many factors to why. First of all, you have to be able to afford to go to counseling. So right. it's not but always... Right, but there are some insurance um, that pay for behavioral health counseling as part, of their, so as part of their insurance. Not always. I definitely will say that. Um, and I think actually having it introduced, because um, coming up, I know growing up for me, um, you don't tell anybody your business. Not... Yeah. It's not seen as it being helpful. It's saying people are being in your business. Why are you telling them your problems and your worries? Yeah. You, don't take, you don't take what's going on inside the house, outside the house. Um, and if you have an issue, go pray. Yeah, I think that's the biggest one. Like, just to <laughs> that's you huge. pray it away. Um, pray it away. I mean, and that happens also with health care and with mental health, your physical health, all of that. A lot of times 
it's well, we're just going to lay some hands on you. We're going to pray it away and, um, and all of that. And it's unfortunately, um, as it can lead to you not getting the care you need in time. Um, whatever your religious beliefs are, um, individuals have still been equipped to still assist you without negating what your spiritual or religious beliefs may be. Um, but I will say in the communities of color, talking about, oh, you know, I need to go see a psychiatrist. I need to go talk to somebody. Someone's quick to say, oh, isn't that what white people do? I, you know what? <laughs> I really, I, I really, I don't say I disagree, but I think it's much, I think it's a much easier topic to discuss now, just because yeah. it's been so much attention paid to it. Like, you, they even have, they even have an, um, they even focus on it in, in the NBA, so it's. That's good, and it needs to. Um, but, you know, historically, when I was growing up, um, that was, and even when I'm, when I've met with some of my clients, that is the, and most of my clients are, are of color and, um, we had to adjust. Um, I had to bring up when somebody asked about the mental health aspect of a, of a survey. And I, I asked them, I said, are you going to say mental health? I said, because the vernacular that you're using and the, the verbiage that you're using does not resonate in the community in which you're trying to talk to about talking about mental health. If you say mental health, and I do, I talk about this in, in one of my, in my presentations, when you talk about mental health in communities of color, a lot of them, they, a lot of times they're like, oh, you mean like uncle, uncle Pete, Pete, uncle Pete in the corner who gets his SSI check, you know, he's special, but no one ever talks about why he's special, but they know yeah. it's side check but he's over there in the corner you know what i mean like so you don't you know it's not addressed and then people get offended you're like oh you think i'm crazy you think i need to go to the loony bin you know people get defensive so when we are developing the surveys you know there's questions that i asked the um the principal investigators i said you know the language that you're using is key like you say mental health in communities of color it, in some communities of color, it reads crazy, even though, or special, or, you know, you just not right in the head, or uh, you, there's so, and that is associated with stigma. It's, and like you said, it's only recently that like, it's, it's been on different TV shows, or it's been brought up in the, in the, the sports arena because of something that has happened, um, that has caused the conversation to begin. Um, but that's only recent. Um, unfortunately. So what about the, what about, what if about um, going to, a, one of the reasons that you may be hesitant to go is because the psychiatrist doesn't look like you. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and a lot of times when you're trying to seek out um, that care, with individuals, the resources you're not, you may not be aware of. Like I do know um, there is a, a service now or a website that's for blackladytherapist.com or blackgirlsneedtherapy.com. Don't quote me on the particular website. I'll get that for you. Um, where we can go specifically to talk to black women um, if we so choose. Um, a lot of it is, it's kind of a double-edged sword because 
although folks don't want to necessarily talk about if they go to therapy or not. And if, and I will say, if you decide, if anybody decides to go to therapy to get their mental health in order, I think the stigma attached to it, I partly don't, I struggle with because if I'm going to see my therapist, that's nobody else's business, but me and the therapist, nobody has to know that I'm going or, and getting the care that I need. And I think sometimes within the communities of color, because we don't talk about that, you don't have to talk to anyone else outside your therapist about it. Then folks would be like, well, why would you go? They're afraid of what their friends may say. So they don't ask, do you have a therapist? So that do you have a therapist of color? So we kind of are self-defeating in that regard because I know I've been to therapy um, for various reasons. Um, and I think it's great because sometimes you don't need to talk to your family. You need a completely objective person that's not going to kick back at you or you just need to vent. And how I got some of my therapists was I talked to one of my girlfriends who hit me to this website where it was therapists of color. And, and I've had male therapists and female therapists that were white and whatever um, ethnicity. Um, but I thought, well, maybe I want to go and talk to someone that does look like me. And I had to, to ask my girlfriends, do you go, who do you go to? So that, that step right there would help facilitate being able to make the network wider of having the opportunity to see therapists of color. But we have to get over that hump of talking about and acknowledge and acknowledging that we need we sometimes need that therapist to talk to, and we prefer that it look like us. But who can I go to to ask that? I mean, there's resources now online that you can look that up. But historically, that I I agree that people haven't gone because they they're like that person doesn't know me. They don't know my struggle. They don't understand where I'm coming from. Um, but I think there are resources now that you can utilize excuse me, to, to find someone that may resonate with you better because they look like you and the message is, messenger is different. I think it's, it's, it's definitely tougher for uh, men because, yeah. um, first of all, we got to, we, it's hard for us to open up, number one. Right. And then number two, um, you know, you never want to be seen as weak or vulnerable and depending on you know, depending on how those conversations go, right? You, know, you you may you may op- open up some doors that you kind of want to keep closed. So, it's, right? Which isn't healthy. At it's all. healthy. It, it, it's definitely healthy, but it's hard. Like it is. I mean, I, even I, just even just like for me, even just like talking to my wife, somebody who I trust with my life. But it's hard for me to open up to her. Right. Even, even there's sometimes like just the way we grew up. There's there's things that we've normalized that yeah. that's not normal. Yeah. And when you when you step outside of that environment, you you yeah. come to realize that that's not normal. Yeah. Very true. Um, I think it's unfortunate that. Um, opening up and talking as a man is associated with being weak to an extent. Um, and, and I think it's, it's self-defeating in that regard because 
if if you're a man that needs to express and get out what he needs to get out, I guess I've seen that, well, you take it on the field, leave it on the field or leave it in the ring or leave it on the court. Um, those are like the main options that men seemingly have to get their emotions out, which have nothing to do with talking at all. You know, so then you're kind of setting yourself up to the fact that you haven't been taught how to talk to anybody about that. You're taught how to go, you know, work it out in the work in the weight room. You're taught to, to go, you know, put it in the, you know, play it on the court, just leave it on the court or something to that effect or drink or, or whatever that vice may be. But it's rarely ever seen as a positive thing to say, well, why don't you just talk about it? instead of doing all the other actions, which is still not dealing with it, but it makes it seem like you're dealing with it. Well, then well, you got to factor this too. So let's say I'm talking to another man about my issues. And I may say something to him that, that was deep and I probably mm-hmm. needed to be comforted, but he couldn't comfort me, you know? Right. So that, that's another thing too. Like men don't... is. <laughs> Men don't know how to console men, so right. It's like that's we can. That's a learned behavior. Well, yes. Well, but see, this is the thing. Just because I could re, like I could relate to you, right? But that you may say something that I can relate to, and then at that moment, not only do you need me to relate to you, you may need me to console you. But that's the right. part that I probably can't do. Right. I think. So, it, and like you said, it speaks to your upbringing because, you know, some individuals are empathetic, but they that next step of being able to console, they're not familiar with because they weren't, how else would you know, how else would you know what that looks like? Or what does that mean to say like, well, I can't console you for whatever reason. It may be because you, you've never seen what that looks like. Or especially in a male to male relationship that you can still be the man and still console another man without there being some undue anxiety to, to consoling one another. Um, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? But I think that's, if you think about like when guys grow up, when do you, when would you even have that conversation? You don't. Exactly. So you don't have that skill set. You don't, not that you don't have the capacity to develop into that, but you've never been exposed. You haven't been exposed to what that looks like. Um, and so you, when, when you come up against another individual that may need to need that consoling, they may really not know what that looks like or know how to, because that they were never taught or they've never seen it in action. Um, at least, you know, cause they could have lived in a household where you may not have seen it in action in that house, but maybe, you could have seen it outside or because it's not something they portray on TV too much either. So you think about, well, where would you pick that up? And if it, and it's generational because then just, it keeps repeating itself because you, that individual never learned how to do that. So then they can never pass it on to someone else to teach that other person what that looks like, or at least so that they understand and are aware that that is a possibility for them. And it's okay for them to do that. But if you think about your interactions as a as a boy growing up for any male, when do those conversations happen? Rare, rarely, if ever. 
So then, of course, it's not, it's not um, um, surprising that you wouldn't know how to do that. Well, now that, I, now, that I've gotten, now that I've gotten older, um, if I have a conversation with a friend that, you know, that I'm really close to, um, rather than trying to take the consoling approach, because mm-hmm. it just makes things awkward, I right. just, um, I'll just offer him words of encouragement, you know, right. let him know I'm here. Because that, believe it or not, that goes a long way, even if it's oh, yeah. just knowing that even if it's just knowing, like, look, man, I'm in your corner. Like, I can't, you know, I can't, I'm sure I can't give you everything that you need right now, but yeah. I can tell you I love you and I'm behind you and I'm in your corner. Yeah. So that's even huge. just that little bit, so. And I wouldn't even say that's a little bit. I think that's huge. I mean, those those words, like you say, words like that carry power um, and you still have left that individual that you're trying to help with um, they don't may not feel embarrassed or anything like that. So then now they've gotten to, it could possibly lead to them making sure that they address, <laughs> mm-hmm, that they address those because now they've, they weren't, they were accepted in a fact, in a manner that allows for that communication to continue because you offered to say, you offered up that you would be there for them. And, and if you need to talk and that you're, you love and support them. And those words of affirmation and encouragement go extremely a long way. Um, I mean, words of affirmation is one of the five love languages that help people manage their emotions and interact with folks. So um, they definitely um, go a long way. I wanted to, um, I know you're a big advocate and you always put out a lot of information about um endometriosis mm-hmm. um for the for some that may not know what it is you mind explaining what it is sure so endometriosis <laughs> is a reproductive um disease that one in ten women have in um the united states and all over the world it is when the lining of your uterus that normally sheds during a woman's menstrual period or menses somehow um, finds its way outside of the uterus and attaches itself to different parts of your, of your reproductive area. um, And it forms little cysts. So if your body is, is getting ready to have its, its cycle. Now these cells that have traveled outside of the, the uterus where it's supposed to be um, are now attached to other parts of your body, but they still shed and bleed because they're triggered by the rest of the body to do that. But now it's outside of the, where of the uterus where it's supposed to be. So you kind of have like chocolate cysts that that internal bleeding that kind of say sits in its, in your womb and then they form chocolate cysts. And then those cysts, um, can attach themselves to your fallopian tubes, to your bladder, to your, um, to your bowels, and or it to itself. Your fallopian tubes could uh, attach to your uterus or behind on your bladder. Bladder, um, and the only there is no cure. There, they still don't know the cause. Um, it is one of the top reasons why women are infertile, um, or that they are not able to sustain a pregnancy. 
Um, it can be, there's four different stages. The stage of endometriosis does not determine the amount of pain you're in. You could be stage one and be in as much pain as a stage four. Um, it depends on how your body responds. Um, it can, uh, there's so many different side effects from fatigue um, to migraines to there are days when you physically, it is it's such a chronic illness, a chronic pain illness that you are completely debilitated some days, um, like cannot move in the bed. Um, there's so many different, uh, so many different situations that it puts you in um, that if you're, the only way to, to diagnose it is through surgery. Um, and you said the only way to diagnose it? To diagnose it is through surgery, yes. Yeah. So, so you could, so, so let me get this straight. You could, you could be walking around with it and not know? Yeah. So like the average woman, uh, and I'll, I'll say this um, in such a way that the average woman can go, it can take seven to 10 years for her to get diagnosed because unfortunately when it comes to women, because the, we have a particular stigma sometimes of being overdramatic or, oh, you just have cramps because we have, you know, we have our cycle, we get our period. So, oh, you just having cramps. So people dismiss that. So when you go to the doctor, they're like, a lot of times clinicians don't really believe you. Um, speaking to my particular situation, I was diagnosed when I was 17. Um, and I didn't know, um, at the time, of course, I had always had rough cycles in school and would be sick and thrown up and had to miss school. And, you know, I grew up thinking that was just kind of how it was. I just had bad cramps and just left at that. Um, but when I was in college or around my 17 or 18 years old, I, I had a ruptured cyst. Um, and at the time it happened while I was at college and I didn't know it was wrong. They thought my appendix ruptured. So um, the doctors like mooned over me for, for hours, hours without giving me pain meds because they didn't want to, di to dilute if my appendix had ruptured because that's toxic and I could have died. So they just unfortunately didn't give me any pain meds, but of course the pain escalated. So eventually they were able to do, you know, uh, an ultrasound and reveal that I had a cyst and that was a cyst that ruptured. And at that point they were like, well, you may have endometriosis, but we don't know. So fast forward six months later, I had to get surgery, um, a, a laparoscopy. And in the laparoscopy, they found they, that's how I was diagnosed because they found that everything was, you know, stuck together. And that's what was probably causing my other pain and fatigue and just nausea and all that other stuff. Um, so I've been, you know, I've been dealing with it for well over 20 years. Um, I used to be I'm more involved now in advocacy than I was before um, because it was something that we didn't, most of us that are in the endo field or endo community, I'll say, have, it's been a very harrowing experience for a lot of us because people, a lot of times people dismiss, dismiss what you have or you don't want to tell anybody. Like 
you don't want to sit down and explain what's going on with the uterus and how this cyst is over here and it ruptured and this part's attached to your, no one wants to hear that right off the bat as to, instead of saying, I just have cramps. So, you know what I mean? Like, and also you don't want to sound like you're complaining to people because people really do think that, oh, why don't you go take some Tylenol? It can't be that bad. Um, personally, I've had 22 different OBGYNs because of dealing with horrible bedside manner, doctors who haven't believed me that something, or they, they miss, they, they, it's, um, they think it's in our head. They think that we're trying to seek attention or that we're trying to get medication. Um, so uh, we're discounted so much. There's, there's a lot of psychological strain. There's physical strain that goes on. And then there's the burden of, you don't want to be a burden to anybody else. You don't want to be a burden to your family or your spouse um, while you're dealing with this because at any given moment, you could have a week can go by and you're good. You're great. You're out there. You're having fun. Within a day or so of what great week you had, you could be knocked down on, literally knocked down on the floor, not able to do anything and just completely you know, paralyzed with pain. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm in quite a, or fortunately, I'm in quite a few support groups, um, which has been very helpful because be dealing with, with endo and all the, the trauma, I guess, that comes with it. Um, and it can be extremely traumatic because I was told when I was 20 to have a hysterectomy. And I was like, what? I'm not, I don't even have a boyfriend. Like, what are you talking about? I can't think of having a hysterectomy right now, but you're trying to cut my life off. Um, and unfortunately, and fortunately for me, I went to other doctors to see what my options were. But unfortunately, a lot of women don't have that option. And then they are preemptively given a hysterectomy. Um, and unfortunately, not given that opportunity to bear children. Um, and you take that into account or with now that you, if you've made that decision, you've had a hysterectomy, now you can't have children or your damage is so bad. The scarring is so bad and adhesions from how this disease has kind of ravaged you that you're going to have to go get in vitro. Um, and some people, of course, you know, it's extremely expensive. They can't afford that. Um, and then they're like, well, maybe you can adopt. That's also expensive. Um, or you get pregnant and you keep having miscarriages. So psychologically and emotionally, it is, it is a very um, challenging um, disease to, to have. And it is a silent, it's a silent one because you can look fine outside and walking down the street and you're in pain all the time. Um, I mean, that's kind of how it is for me. You just learn how to deal with it. Um, and unfortunately, because that's a constant for some women, some women can't take it anymore. And we've lost um, a few of our endo sisters, as we call ourselves, to suicide. Um, recently, we lost one of our other endo sisters about a week or so ago um, because you go to the doctor and they don't believe you. Or especially now with the opioid crisis, um, the pain meds that you know work, if you ask for them when you go to the R, then you get flagged for being a possible addict or abusing opioids. 
And then people dismiss you like, oh, it can't be that bad. Drink some tea, get a heating pad. Um, and it's, it can be, it's a lot. And a lot of times, um, you know, it's just now getting on the scene. Like now I'm so excited to see that there are commercials for it. There's organizations that are, are out and about for it, um, which is great. Um, but because it's silent um, and you don't see it, it's an invisible illness um, and you don't, and people may not take you seriously. A lot of us are pretty quiet about it because we feel like we're burdening people when we talk about it. So this year um, I was very privileged and honored to be included in a group of ladies with a group of other ladies um, within the, the black community um, of other African-American women that have endometriosis and that we deal with it. Um, unfortunately, we get diagnosed much later than our counterparts um, because a lot of physicians think that we're more sexually promiscuous than our other counterparts. So they misdiagnose us with pelvic inflammatory disease or irritable, or irritable bowel syndrome or um, polycystic ovary syndrome, or we also call PCOS, but they won't go and check if that's what I have, if that's what you have, if it is endo. But, um, you know, so you just kind of have to fight through. And um, a lot of us also have other reproductive challenges that um, enhance and amplify the negative effects of endometriosis. Um, and it just, it, it can make for getting through a day a huge challenge. Um, and then just, just getting out of bed, just sometimes there was a time when I was first diagnosed that I was completely incapacitated more often than not. Um, I couldn't, I, wouldn't, I was missing a ton of work and I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't get up, I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't, you know, it can be an, it's, it can be a really scary situation, um, especially when people don't know and it, could come out, it can come out of the blue, like you could have an endo flare out of the blue and it feels like someone just stabbed you in your abdomen multiple times and it can bring you to your knees um, and just, you know, just leave you kind of hopeless sometimes. So we try to, with the adv advocacy um, and the exposure, uh, I'm hoping that I can um, get more women to talk about it and get more women to go and ask their doctors about it and have those conversations um, and not just dismiss period pain when it really could be something else. And don't jump at having a hysterectomy at first, at first diagnosis. Um, a lot of physicians are not as well schooled on this as you would think, unfortunately, which is why a lot of us end up um, having to, to go through different medications and whatnot. Um, the, the process and the treatments, um, because there's no cure and they don't know what the impetus is for it, we end up being guinea pigs and the amount of medications that we go on and the, the side effects that happen. Um, there was a drug that I was, there's a medication that I was on when I was in college soon after I had my first surgery and the side effects, the, the medication was initially 
made for men dealing with prostate cancer. And I just happened to see that it reduced inflammation and the growth of certain things in, I guess, their lab, female lab rats or something. And so they decided, well, we're going to put it out there for women. And so many women have had horrible side effects from it. Um, I know when I was on it, I had to leave, I had to drop out of college for a semester and a half because the side effects were too intense. Um, it puts your body, you, you just, you go through a lot. Um, and support system is, having a support system is so crucial. Um, I'm very happy I have my, my groups, my support groups, um, because talking about it to people that don't know, it sounds like you're complaining. It could sound like you're complaining. So we're just trying to make individuals more aware of, of the seriousness of this disease, how it can show up with um, adenomyosis, which is essentially like the cousin disease of endometriosis, where you kind of have the similar types of symptoms that are in your uterus instead of outside like endo. And then also fibroids for women of color are huge. We're not really sure why more women of color get, um, have a higher rate than their counterparts, but unfortunately that seems to be the case. Um, so some of us deal with all three and trying to explain that to your provider, trying to explain that to your spouse, your family. Um, it's a lot, you know, it is, it, it wears on you. It, it can really wear on you and it can get to your, it can take down your spirit. It can, bring on depression. It can, I mean, that's how unfortunately some of my fellow endo sisters end up committing suicide because the pain meds don't work. No one wants to listen to you. Something else goes on because it can trigger other things in your body. Um, you can have endo in your lungs. You can have it in your, you know, wherever your blood system goes, it can travel to those parts of your body as well. So it can be, it's a very debilitating disease. For some, um, and those of us that deal with it, when we have good days, we run with it. And then some days that next day, we may pay for it for the next three days. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's a struggle, but, you know, we fight through it as best we can. And we provide support to each other as best we can. And hopefully there'll be a cure someday. Man, hopefully that's... Um... I mean, while I'm just sitting back and listening, um, it sounds like the mental part is probably worse than the physical part. It's even and that with all that, and with considering all that pain, just just the whole mental. Because you said it's twenty, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, just being like, I can't. Of course, I can't relate to uh, you know being a woman, but mm -hmm. I mean, just the whole thing at, you know, at 20 years old and somebody's telling you about, you may never reproduce. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's gotta be, uh, yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's, it's rough. It is really, really rough. When, when I, when they first told me that, like, I don't know if I was in denial because I didn't get the hysterectomy then. I didn't, I didn't do it then. I, I, I've had four surgeries. Um, I've had four laparoscopies. 
for this endo every time they go in you know there's more scarring and what have you um i'm getting ready to have my fist um some women have had more than me some women you know have, have had two a year i've had some back to back and the mental part you know when they tell you you know years have gone by and then they say well we don't know if you're going to be able to have kids um there's the whole I mean that that part anyway. Like they say, you're not going to be able to have you should you're not going to be have kid, able to have kids. Get a hysterectomy. So then you step away from that. Then you you know go on through your life, going through your medications, and then they say, well, you need to hurry up and have kids um, if you want to have a chance. You need to hurry up and do it before you're forty, before you're thirty nine, before you're thirty six, or what have you. Um, and then you're maybe at a point where you're not ready to have children. You don't know if you're ready to try or then you get to that next step. For me, they're like, well, we're just going to do this one test to see if you even can, if the, the eggs are even going to go where they need to go. Um, or there's the next step where they've, I've been told by some doctors that you're just not viable to hold, to carry a child. Um, that that hits hard because you don't think about, you know, because most women just assume they're going to be able to have pregnant. You don't know you can't get pregnant until you, you try. Um, and not that I was necessarily trying or what have you, because these are decisions and statements that were made to me before I was even in a place to consider trying to have kids or what have you. Um, so the mental strain that, First, you're told you can't have them. Then you're told you shouldn't have them. And then you add that on together that you shouldn't and you, and you can't. And if you do, the, the risk is higher for you than the child, um, which I've been told that if you get pregnant, the chances of you carrying the baby to term are slim to none because it's going to endanger your life versus the child. Um, and being told those things you know, over years, over a decade, um, you know, it does wear on you mentally. And it's a lot. Like, um, you know, I think I've, um, before I was married, um, you know, I was single for a very long time because I, it, you kind of have that, well, do I want to tell anybody that I may or may not be able to have kids? What if I get with somebody and I can't have children. Are they still going to be with me? Or what if I want to try and do I want to adopt? Or I can't even fathom, you know, the price at that point. And I have girlfriends who have done in vitro and it is not cheap at all. Like folks have married, mortgaged their homes. Uh, people have divorced in the midst of it. Um, it. It takes a toll on 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 you all the possibilities of what else would go wrong or and then if having these particular ailments puts you at a higher risk of developing cervical cancer ovarian cancer and uterine cancer so now you got to think about all of those things on top of what you're dealing with but a what if um situation or scenario that may present itself so psychologically it can be a lot it definitely it definitely wears on you um, and it is a support system is so vital. Um, 
you know, and, and if, if sometimes that's not there, it can, it can take you to a dark place, you know, um, if you don't have someone else to talk to about it that understands where you're going, where you're coming from and what you're going through um, day in and day out uh, and being in pain every day. It's just how much pain you're in or how well you can mask it and keep moving with your life, you know. The mental part, it's a doozy. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a doozy. So I'm just, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around it 20 years old. Oh, yeah. And that's, and unfortunately, that's, that's normal for, that has been normal for years that they're like, yeah, you just, just, have a hysterectomy. Like what? A lot of people that don't, they, that are, they think they're helping you, but they're not because. So, can I ask you a question? Um, yeah. When the people that, the, the doctor, is it a man? I've had men and women doctors. But the one that, when you were 20, to say the history. Oh yeah, it was a man. It was I kind of figured that because now, look, I'm no doctor, but I just can't, I can't imagine a woman telling another woman at 20, just have a hysterectomy. Yeah. And he had told me, and I was by myself. Like, my boyfriend at the time hadn't gotten to the hospital yet. Um, my parents weren't, were not in the room. I don't know where they were at that point. If it was right after surgery or a particular appointment. But it was so harsh and callous. Like... It, it really, like, it cut me to my core when he said it so, so nonchalant, so cavalier. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought I would always be able to, you know, I would always have kids. Um, you know, then that's always in the back of your mind that someone told you you can't or you don't know or whether that's the case or not. But having it being told that at such a young age, um, it, it, it does shape who you are. It does shape what, where, where you go with your career. Um, because after that, I was, I was very much gung-ho into my career and my fellowships and um, making sure, like, I was all about where am I going with my career? Because it was kind of like subliminally, well, I'm not going to be able to have kids, so... I might as well focus on my career. Um, and even though that may not have been the case at the time, like realistically, but at that time, because I wasn't necessarily given another option until I started seeing other doctors, um, you know, it, it, it changes how you think. It changes how you perceive the world, how you inter interact with people, how you date, how you engage with other women, how you engage with your friends um, and your friends that start having babies. Um, and what does that, you know, what does that do? What is, what is that like um, for you? And in the back of your mind, you're like, so do I try? Do I not try? Do I, I don't even have a spouse. Do I, how am I going to afford this? And egg storage is like $8,000 in vitro is hundreds could be hundreds of dollars like a hundred dollars is easy depending on how many treatments and cycles you go um and and you realize that 
you know, subliminally, whether you like it or not, it's, it's kind of there in the back of your mind. How, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to shape your life going forward? What career path are you going to go now? Or, um, you know, do you just stay by yourself? Do you find someone with kids? Um, what is that going to mean for any relationship that you enter? Because it's, it's an integral part of your life, you know, and it's, and I don't think um, a lot of physicians realize that impact when they talk to their patients. Was that was that something? Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just because <laughs> um, you you mentioned the dating part. Was that something you was like? Did you when you were dating? Did you say, "Well, I want to meet a man with kids," or you just was kind of like open and seeing what happened? I was open to see what happened. Yeah, um, but there's always that fear um, that what if you do meet somebody that you gel with and vibe with and and they want kids and yeah. like I don't I don't know if I can have them and depending on your livelihood um, at the time being able to afford it. It's it's crazy, expensive, and um, you know you got to put those things kind of in perspective sometimes, whether you like it or not. Or I'm just, you put your good big girl panties on and keep it moving. Yeah, I'm, I'm just because I'm just thinking like um, you know, just I'm just putting myself in a position where if I met a woman in her early twenties and she told me. You know, it's like she 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 knows her situation, because like you said, you, you really don't know until you start trying. So right. if you tell me that at like twenty, you were only twenty. So if you telling me that at twenty, like I don't, I really don't know. I'm just, and again, I'm only speaking for myself. I don't yes. even know how I could have handled that because I'm gonna be honest. Like growing up, I um, I, it's weird. It's just like. I didn't think about having kids. It was just kind of like I felt like it was going to happen. I, I right. think I, I talked to some men, and some men say they grew up, you know, thinking about the family and all that stuff. I, just, I just, I, I didn't give it a lot of thought. I, right. I mean, I felt like I always felt like I would, you know, get married, had kids, but it wasn't something that that I thought about. It was just something that I was like, you know. I guess that's just my personality. I was like, it'll happen. Right. I mean, because I think that's what, more more often than not, I think most people think that, oh, well, you know, one day I'll settle down and have some 2.5 kids, a dog in a house with a picket fence or whatever the stereotype thing is. But, 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 don't, but I mean, but, but, but I think women think about marriage more than men. We, I, don't, I, I, I have yet to meet a guy who, you know, he, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it exists, but he was, you know, he was a teenager because women start thinking about marriage and stuff when they're young, like. They're, they're we're programmed. Yeah, whereas men is just like, you know, right. it'll, it'll, it'll happen. happen. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, I, I guess because we, like, especially if you are a man that pursues women, like if you're not the, 
if you're not the type that's waiting on a woman to chase you, like if you right. if you if you're the guy who's going to pursue women, then it's like it'll happen because it's like when I feel like I want it to happen, it's gonna happen. It'll happen, right? Yeah, that is very true. But it, yeah, it's a lot the, the the delivery, the bedside manner to be told at that age is was not great. You know, it wasn't it wasn't great, but um. You know, at the time, you just kind of, and I don't think at that time I told my boyfriend that, because in our minds, we were going to get married, even though that relationship, (laughs) that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, I I, I don't even know how you could have told him that, honestly. Yeah. And and Uh, at 20, he probably, at 20, you can't even... He was you, ready guys were the, you guys were the two. You were two. You were the same age. He was twenty. Yeah, but he was. I mean, you know, when I I I had a very strict strict upbringing, so you know, he was my first boyfriend. Like official boyfriend was in college, so but we were like joined at the hip, and in his mind, we were gonna get married. Like he already knew when he pursued me, and we got together. He had told his mom that we were. Like I wasn't thinking about that, but he his brain was on marriage when he met me. Like we got further into it. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> Time out. Slow down, um, young fella. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just getting out the house. I just moved out the house. Like I wanna enjoy my life. <laughs> You talking about getting married and we're just, we can't even go to the bar yet. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't tie my life up just yet, guy. Right, exactly, exactly. I, I, I don't, I don't even think he could have received that. Not the way, nah, not the way it needed to be received. Not at 20. You can't, especially a man, a woman, maybe. I don't know if we, I just know a man could, because we just not. Yeah, at twenty, that's just to your mind. A, a, a twenty-year-old man mind is not deep yeah. enough to receive something like that. So you, even if you had told him, it wouldn't have meant nothing, right? Because he wouldn't, he couldn't receive that. He he probably would have. He either would have been like, well, he probably could have took the approach. Well, you're still young. You don't right. know which. He would have been right. Yeah. So. That, that probably would have been his approach. I know that would have been my approach. Like, I would have yeah. been like, well, you know, well, let, let's just see what happens. Right. You're only 20. So exactly. that would have been mine. So I, I can't see. I mean, shit. Yeah, it's a lot. It was, it was, um, it was kind of like, whoa. Seriously? Um, thanks. I mean, what do you want me? It's, it's kind of like, so you're not going to give me any post counseling for that, which you just told me. So, you know, it, it definitely is impactful. Um, a lot of the other women that I'm in my groups with, some of them just got diagnosed like maybe three or four years ago. Um, and um, I was pretty much quiet about it for a long time. You know, I just kind of dealt with it because I didn't, I honestly, I didn't want to scare anybody off. Um, you know, you because you you are in positions with my my the guy I was with before I'm, I was married. Um, 
it puts you in a, it puts them in a caretaker mode that if your significant other is not ready to take on, it can just amplify your situation in a negative way. Um, and then they're, they're kind of forced to, you know, do everything for you depending on feeling, you know? Um, and if they're not looking for that, then that can cause a whole other host of issues, you know, um, too soon. Like, wait, I wasn't trying, I didn't sign up to be a caretaker of this person and we just dating, you know? So for some folks, it's, it's, you really have to, you, when you date, you really have to be mindful of what that person's personality is. At least in the beginning, you know, I, I was very conscious of it. And that's probably why I was single for so long because I really didn't want to burden a man with that. I thought that would chase him away um, to a degree. Um, you know what I mean? Because that's a, that's a responsibility and um, it's something that just doesn't go away, you know, for some people. For some women, you know, they have children and it subsides and, and it goes into um, remission, which is great. Um, but some women have hysterectomies and they still have endo. It's just traveled out in other parts of their body. Um, so mm-hmm. it's a lot. I mean, it, it definitely can be, it d- definitely has driven me to to some of the decisions, a lot of the decisions that I've made that have led me to this point in my life. Um, and definitely to where, like where I am now in my, my little lady cave in my, in my house. Um, because you have to figure out what are ways to cope? What are ways to take that energy and use it in a positive way to make sure you're not self-destructive, to make sure that you don't get into the woe is me mode and why me and oh my God. Not to say that you're not allowed to have those moments, but you just can't stay there as best as possible. Um, you know, so it's it's an ever evolving thing. It's an ever evolving process for you to be able to deal with it. And then oftentimes you gotta, without explaining it, you have to explain it to people at work because there's days where you've, you know, there's been days in my past I've, I can't drive because of the pain meds that I'm on. I, I, I shouldn't be driving, so I have to stay home. Or maybe I have to leave work early because I can't move in my particular uh, office or cube or what have you because I'm in too much pain. Um, or if I know if I get up, I'm a fallout. You know, I, that has happened to me. At one of my jobs, I have that I where the ambulance had to come and get me because I had fallen out because of pain. Um, you know, it's it's always an adventure. I'll say that. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, it could always be worse. Um, so you you really have to do some soul searching some days to just get through. Um, just a regular day for some. Some folks who you try not to take for granted um, the days where you feel good and you, you really try to embrace them as much as possible um, and, and hope that you'll get some relief 
whether it be temporary or not from your pain meds or through a particular particular surgical procedure or what have you. And, you, you know, try to mind your diet. Diet has a lot to do with um, some of the pain. Um, you just think of all doing yoga. I mean, whatever you can do that can help you channel that pain and tired um, mindset and fatigue into something positive. So you can focus on that and not what you may be going through physically. Wow. I want to, man, I want to take the time to thank you for um, doing this. Uh, you know, that was a lot um, just to be so open and honest about, you know, that how it affects you because um, e- even me, I mean, this conversation actually has helped me to just to be more understanding as a as a human. Because you, you just what? never know what um, you never know what people are going through. Yeah, you don't. Um, so it, it, this was uh, this actually was a good conversation. Good. For me, so I'm happy to hear that. I will say the one thing though that can be a double edged sword. For those of us that deal with it and have the types of jobs where we sometimes have to be out and about, we don't want to look, oftentimes if we can, we don't want to look like what we've been through. So I know for me personally, days that I'm not feeling well, I will make that extra effort to dress up more or take more time with my physical appearance and my makeup because outwardly, if I look at myself and then reflect in the mirror, I, I'm like, okay, I look good psychologically. This is going to make me feel good. Um, which is sometimes, it, and it's a double-edged sword in the, in the fact that people see you looking good and put together. They're like, well, if she's really not much pain, she looks too good not to, to, be, to, to feel bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that kind of works against you. But then you also, I also don't want to go to work looking like how I feel. Yeah. I don't want to go to work looking like a hangover times 10 or death warmed over. Um, and then, I mean, but some days you, you have to. Um, you, some days you physically just cannot get yourself together, but you know you have to be somewhere. So you lucky, so you just get there by... By sure will, sheer will, rather. And then people see you without your mask on, which, you know, I know you've seen those commercials where individuals are dealing with depression and they have the little hand, the little smiley face. Yeah. They, yeah, it's, it's pretty much the same thing because you could be sitting there in pain and doing breathing to just get through um, so that folks... So that you don't fall out in front of the people and think that, you know, something else is like going on with you. But you you have to kind of go through the motions to make sure and tell yourself. It's kind of like you, you fake it till you make it for some some of us because you have to tell yourself, it's, I, I've got to get I got to get to work today. I got to do this. I got to do that. But then on the days when you when you when you just can't. And you go to work and you don't take the time to do what you normally would do. 
And then you get the backlash like, oh, my God, you look horrible. Why did you come into work? You look sick. Oh, my God. Like, it's like you can't win for losing. Because if I look too good, you're not going to think anything's wrong with me. Yeah. So, like, oh, she can't be that sick. I saw her out doing da-da-da-da. Um, or at this event or that event. And then the next day, you're you're laid out and you can't move. And you you just you you just have nothing to give because all you do is sit and cry and be and, and just be sad. And then the next day someone sees you, you're like, Hey, how you doing? Yeah, it's like they don't they don't realize how much energy you put in to make yeah. it through that one day. Yeah. So that that can be daunting on your spirit. It can be very daunting on your spirit. Well, I hope um I hope you continue with your uh, counseling and meeting you. with your uh, with your groups because you know it's always good to have people to you know listen yeah. to you and can relate to you. So it makes a difference. It really does. Like our groups will just text somebody and be like, "Oh my gosh, did you?" I felt like this, this, and this today. And we'll all chime in and be like, oh, yeah, me too. Like, there was an endo march in D.C. on March 29th that I signed up for and got all my stuff to go. And I had an endo flare that day. So, unfortunately, I wasn't even able to go to support in March for my cause because I was homesick. Um, and not and not feeling well, and the only other person that only other people that could understand that were my other endo sisters who also didn't make it because we were all home with a flare. So it was it was funny, but it wasn't because we're like, hey, did you make it to the to the march? And then some people were like, no, not this this time. I missed it. Or the other people would be like, yeah, I made it. I'm you know I'm I'm walking for you. So. And it's it's unfortunate because some days you don't know day by day how it's gonna be. It's the the month is what is it? is it February March whatever. March is endo March is endometriosis awareness okay. month. Okay. And uh, April is adenomyosis awareness month. Because the color is yellow, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I, that means my stuff's getting out there. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. I put a little bit. I, um, yeah. I, 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 I follow the post, so I try to be, you know, I try to be aware of, you know, what's going on. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. You, you know, you just, again, because you never know. Um, I say this. I, I knew I knew it had to be something because you, you were so passionate about it. So, mm-hmm. If if I see somebody posting something and it's, you know they passionate about it, then I'll read it. I mean, look if you're not if you're not passionate about the shit, I'm not reading. Right. It's a lot of other things. It's a lot of other things I could be wasting my right, time. Right. Exactly. So. And it took me a while to get to this point to where I'm comfortable telling people my story because. I've told other endo folks and, you know, maybe my, some of my loved ones that have, my family and friends have seen me go through it, but most people have no idea like what my whole story is. 
Um, I'm kind of in the process of writing that up, actually, um, for two different folks actually, um, to talk about it. And I think maybe for me, talking about it outside of my, you know, if I've gone to my therapist or whatever, um, talking about it in a sense for it to get out. Um, I thank you for that opportunity because I, I haven't. I haven't talked to anybody widely about it unless it's the, the audience of endo women that understand where I'm coming from. Because I feel if I tell anybody else, I'm complaining. Yeah. yeah anybody want, nobody wants to hear that. Like, well, I, I thank you for telling it. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, you know, well, unfortunately, I don't want to say I'm sure, but the, the probability is somebody will hear this and they'll be able to relate. So, I hope so. And uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, I'll make sure that they get um, second opinions, maybe third opinions, um, diet, adjust their diet. And now I'm really sitting back and looking at how different foods are processed. Not that I wasn't before, but now I'm more, I'm getting to that point where certain things I know I just can't eat um, because my body doesn't like them. Yeah. You know, and coming to grips with that um, is, it's also challenging because then you realize at times you have limitations. They may not be, they may be temporary, but sometimes there is a limitation to what you can do. And that can be extremely frustrating, extremely frustrating for you because you have in your mind what you want to do, what, whether it be go to the store or get up and do work. And your body just, you know, you, your body is fighting you um, and trying to deal with that. You know, and other individuals that deal with chronic illness and um, autoimmune diseases understand you know what that's like when you're fighting, your body is fighting itself. Your body is upset with you. Um, something could trigger what have you and, and, and learning how to deal with that. Um, you know, I've journal, I journal, um, I've journaled most of my life to capture some of these things um, sometimes because that's, that's an outlet or dancing used to be one of my other outlets. And now it's, um, my room in my in my home and I meditate now and um I did take the one good thing I will say that has come of this um while dealing with all these that that particular health condition um compounded other health challenges that I was dealing with and I I needed to figure out how do I channel that energy into something positive and something that's beneficial to me or somebody else. So I decided that I was going to make my, I always knew I was going to do a lady cave in, in my basement next to Will's, you know, gentleman's lounge, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this room was all, you know, <laughs> that was a whole little negotiation. But um, I knew that I needed to do something so that I could keep my sanity from dealing with the the pain and, and disappointment of all the stuff that I've been going through over these past 20 years. So I took it, I 
I took this room and made it into my my Zen den, she shed, or lady cave, what have you. So now I have a place where I can relax and I meditate now. Um, and I also paint. Um, and then just a place where it's just for me to lay out if I need to, if I'm in pain and I just want to lay out and cry or I need to lay here with my heating pad or dance around or what have you. Um, it's where I need to get out that energy um, and turn those, those thoughts and, and pains into something positive. Um, so that kind of has morphed into other things for me as far as um, a potential business opportunity um, for myself, as far as some of my girlfriends have been to my, my lady cave and they're like, well, if you'd formed this room to help you deal with what you're dealing with and help you process and get peace and relax, um, you know, some people may pay you to help them create their own little sacred spaces to have their Zen moment, to have their me time, to just decompress. So that's something that I'm exploring uh, at this moment because um, I like to decorate and what have you anyway, but knowing that this is a therapeutic outlet for me and it has helped with me processing on the mental level and the physical level of, of how to deal with some of my health challenges and just life in general. Um, and that was a way for me to start to actively cope with it and putting it into action. And hopefully um, it will translate into to other things and helping other women um, creating that space for them to heal. And that's, that's from the, the mental wounds, from the heart wounds of, you know, dealing with this, this ailment or not being able to conceive or not be able to, um, to, to, be able to, to do regular everyday things sometimes that a lot of people take for granted. So we'll see how that, um, you know, manifests. Um, I started my, I'm in the very, very beginnings of starting a lifestyle blog to talk about some of these things as, as far as women's health and how to deal with their reproductive challenges as women. Um, and then just health in general, and then taking the visioning phenomena of like vision boarding and what have you, and morphing that into something as far as vision vision journaling for women to get get in their head where they want to go, and then that in turn speaks to creating a space where you can actually sit down and think about what it is that you want to manifest that you may have done for your vision board or your vision journaling but creating that safe space and sacred space for you as, for you to be able to do that. Um, and then creating events surrounding those types of things as well. So we shall see how this grows um, and manifests over the next couple of years. Well, I'm glad we can, I'm glad after all of that, we can end on a positive note. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I really, you know, I, of course we know each other and I, yeah. I've always admired you and I, I think you're a great person. So I'm sure that everything will come together the way God intended it to. Thank you. I, I pray so. I'm, I'm trying to navigate. I, I started another um, Instagram page, which is inspirational. Um, and, you know, you've seen some of my posts. Most of my posts nowadays 
I, tr- I try to have them being more inspirational than anything. Um, and so my regular page is kind of a little bit of everything. And, but I decided like I've had a lot of people hit me up that I don't know after reading some of my inspirational posts and, you know, <laughs> ask, let me know that whatever I sent out really helped them today um, and helped them get through whatever tough time they were getting through. So I wanted to create another space where it's just primarily inspiration and wellness um, and focusing on self-care. So that's my new, my new IG page um, called uh, Marake Life and Style um, or Marake, Marake. Uh, <laughs> depends on the, 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 where you want to put the accent um, on the word, but um, and I also have it behind me on my wall, actually. Okay. Um, and it's a Greek word that means to, well, I'll just read the little thing. It means the soul, creativity, or love you put into something, the essence of yourself that, you, that is put into your work, which I felt was appropriate for this stage of my life and what I'm doing in this next chapter. Um, because of how passionate I am of women's health and making sure that we're taking care of ourselves um, and, and being mindful to take care of one another as best as possible. And I'm hoping that my desire for that, all of that will manifest and to my lifestyle blog and help other people and to my other pages that are inspirational and um, I'm glad that other people have hit me up that I don't know. And they're like, your posts are just awesome. Thank you for sharing. Please keep them up. Um, it really helped me get through my day. And, and if I can help someone in that way, get through their day, then um, I'm, I'm excited and I'm, I'm happy that I can do that and just get the good vibes out at all costs and help Definitely. people with their journey. Definitely. Well, again, thank you for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, thank you for the, the page again? Be- before I Before I end it, what's the page again? Because I want to make sure everybody get it. Oh, I'm going to tell, read it for you. Make sure. It's not that one. It is Morake. Okay. Life and Style, LLC. So it's Marake underscore, which is M-E-R-A-K-I underscore life, L-I-F-E underscore N underscore style, LLC. All right. So it's at the very beginning. I have um, just started putting some more inspirational posts that I've transferred from my other page. Um, my Nas 1908 page that um, I have a lot of information on or a lot of information for my endo endometriosis and adenomyosis is on my other IG page, Nas 1908. Um, but I'm transferring a lot of the inspirational stuff to the Marake Life and Style page. There's also a link to my blog, which is um, under construction. I have the landing page there. And um, I'll be developing content going forward um, for different things. 
we shall see lifestyle nutrition. Um, Will's going to have a section for the gentleman's lounge or whatever men, whatever he wants to talk about with fashion and, and sports and, and stuff like that. So um, I look forward to being able to collaborate with you and him on that section, to get that up and running. And definitely just let me know. We'll, de- we'll definitely keep you posted. So. All right. Well, thank you again. And, thank thanks you. Everyone, and thank you for everyone that tuned in. If you want to follow me, my name is Lance 827 Thank you all. And, that'll, and this one. Have a good one. Thanks.